thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. For more podcasts and more information on your number one news and talk station, please visit 702.co.za or capetalk.co.za. Stand up for the law. Stand up for decency. Stand up for compassion. Stand up for respect. Stand up for your community. Stand up for your future. Stand up for South Africa. Lead SA. .co.za The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. 28 minutes to 10 o'clock and The Naked Scientist brought to you by the National Arts Festival Grahamstown. 11 days of amazing from 30th of June. Chris, good morning. Welcome. Hello. Hi there. I, I have a question to ask you. I've got this big race coming on Sunday. I can't stop talking about it because it's the biggest event of my <laughs> life uh, every year. But Obviously, I've been sick with a cold and I've had people say, don't run, quit and so on. But I've been given a clean bill of health. And I was told if it were flu where I'm shivering and the temperature's high and I feel f- fatigued and all of that, that would be a problem. And then somebody else yesterday told me that they, they have a friend who was a doctor and they, they went out for a jog when they were sick and came back home. And a couple of minutes later, they just collapsed and died. Does that happen when you have a flu or a cold? And what is that? Well, when you're unwell, um, one of the reasons you feel so unwell, and often your whole body feels unwell, but the virus is only in your respiratory tract, in your nose and throat, is because when you have the infection, the virus triggers the immune system to produce lots of chemicals that signal to other parts of the immune system to come and come to your nose and get rid of the virus infection. And these chemicals called cytokines, including one family of them called interferons, have as a side effect making you feel awful. And the reason that they make you feel awful is to stop you doing stuff. Because fighting infection takes enormous amounts of resource. It's very energy hungry because you have to run a temperature. It's also very energy hungry because you have to make many, many millions of new cells, immune cells and cells in your nose and throat to replace those that are damaged by the virus. And you've also got to make lots of antibodies. These are proteins. So if you're running around trying to build up muscle and being very active, then you're stealing resources away from the part of the body that needs the most, the immune system, to defend you. And that's why it's a good idea when you feel unwell to listen to what your body's saying and take it easy. There's no direct reason why you should suddenly keel over if you've got a cold and you do some mild activity because people are doing that all the time. It's likely we're every single one of us infected with something at any one time. But if you overdo it, it is putting a huge load on the body. And if you have, say, an underlying problem, some people might have a heart condition uh, that they don't know they've got. And if you mm-hmm. overload the system by increasing the demands on the body, then your heart demands are going to be higher than they would be normally because your heart's trying to not only help you run around, but it's also trying to provide excess output for uh, supporting the immune function. Then it could overload you Mm -hmm. in the sense that you'll disclose a problem you didn't know you had, and that can cause some people to have sudden death. Um, And either things like 
um, a, blood, a blood clot in a coronary artery causing a heart attack can do that. And in some people it's just that their heart, when they speed up the rate too much, it can then go into an abnormal rhythm and then they have sudden cardiac death. So there are things that can happen mm -hmm. if you overdo it when you're not well and you should listen to what your body tells you. Okay, thank you very much, Chris. Thank you. Let's talk about um, an attractive way to make magnets. What that, what's that about? Sounds exciting. Oh, well... Um, one of the aspects of magnetism is that we talk about magne magnetic substances being either ferromagnetic. In other words, like a piece of iron, you can turn them into a permanent magnet so that if you pick the magnet up, you can then stick it onto things that are attracted to magnets. Another kind of magnetism is a concept called paramagnetism. And something that's paramagnetic will be attracted to or deviated by a magnetic field, but is not itself a magnet. And what scientists in Japan have managed to do, and they've published this this week uh, in the journal Science, this is Tomotero Fukumura, who's at Tokyo University, a an amazing discovery. They have managed to take a substance, in fact they use titanium dioxide, the white stuff uh, which you uh, use to make paper white actually and paint, mm. um, but by adding about one in ten of the atoms or substituting one in ten of the atoms with cobalt, so they end up with a crystal made of titanium dioxide with one in ten of the atoms being a cobalt atom. They get this bizarre substance which, when you apply an electric voltage to it, goes from being a paramagnetic material, in other words, attracted to a magnet, to actually becoming a permanent magnet itself. And it's only a permanent magnet, temporarily, if you see the pun, uh, because what's actually mm. happening is that as soon as you take the voltage off again, mm -hmm. the magnetic effect goes away. And it does this, amazingly, at room temperature, because people have managed to achieve a sort of similar feat before, but only at really low temperatures of about minus 270 degrees C, um, close to absolute zero. This works at room temperature. How it works, they say, is that uh, when you put these cobalt atoms in, because cobalt atoms are themselves naturally magnetic, then the material behaves as a paramagnet. It will be attracted to a magnetic field. But when you put the electrons in, then the electrons make all of the spin of the electrons in the cobalt atoms all line up and the electrons wander between the cobalt atoms in the material and help them all to align. And that means they then behave like the permanent ferromagnet that iron is and cobalt is. And so that's how you're able to switch between these two. And you might say, well, why is that important? Well, you could use something like that, a magnet that you can literally turn from uh, one kind of magnet to another with a small amount of electricity permanently. You could use that as a tiny micro switch or a transistor. So it's a sort of step change in what we might be able to do electronically. But more importantly, uh, for the here and now, um, what you can also do is use a magnetic substance to rotate the plane of polarised light. What that means is that if you had a filter in front of the substance that mm. only let light in one direction go through it, and then you could turn the magnetic effect on and off, then you could very quickly turn the amplitude of a light source up and down or on and off. So you could use it as a really rapid way to put information into fibre optic cables and that means that you could download the podcast of the Reedy Direco or it's a really clubby show with, <laughs> with the Naked Scientist on a Friday morning much faster oh. than you can at the moment. I think a lot of people would like that. You know that, uh, Chris, we get emails literally now. Somebody's probably sending an email. Is the Naked Scientist available as a podcast? It's, breathe, breathe, breathe. Give Thomas an opportunity to eat his Kentucky Fried Chicken first, and then he puts the podcast together. But, Chris, you said you used the term ferromagnetic material. What's a ferromagnetic? What's ferromagnetic? 
Well, when people began to study magnetism, they thought that things that were made of iron only were magnetic. And so this term ferromagnetic came along, meaning uh, containing iron, because iron has this special property that it is magnetic and it can be magnetized. What's actually going on, if you look at uh, this at the molecular or atomic level, is that the electrons that go round the iron atoms have a concept called spin. And if you make all of the electrons around all of the atoms in a piece of iron spin in unison in the same direction, if you like, what that does is it creates the magnetic field and in a piece of iron, if you do that under the right conditions, you can make that change permanently. Mm -hmm. And so something is called a ferromagnet. Uh, there are other substances and oxygen. If you make liquid oxygen, um, that does not uh, hold a magnetic effect like that, but if you put it between the poles of a very strong magnet, oxygen will move. So you can bend a stream of oxygen, liquid oxygen. It's pretty nasty stuff. It's quite cold at minus 190 degrees. Mm. But you can bend the stream of a piece of oxygen because it's paramagnetic. So that, those were the two terms that were arrived at, meaning a permanent magnet and then one that is a, a substance attracted to magnets but which is itself not a permanent magnet. And then scientists discovered there are actually a few other chemicals like cobalt which will behave like iron. So you've got ferromagnetic materials mm. which are actually made of cobalt, for example. Okay. So it's slightly a, a sort of legacy of the old terminology. I get it. Now, I've got a question for you, and good luck in trying to answer it, Chris. What's round and measures a billionth of a millimeter? Oh, well, I know the answer because I, <laughs> I wrote this. Uh, but there's a big story which is going around the internet and on all the news wires because of a big breakthrough from Imperial College in London. And this is a guy called Johnny Hudson and his colleagues at, at Imperial. And they have actually measured the shape of an electron. And an electron is about 10 to the minus 12. So it's about a billionth of a millimeter um, across. So a tiny particle. And there's always been this big question about, well, what shape is an electron? Because there are various theories around about uh, what make, makes up an electron, what the particles are that make up atoms and so on. And by measuring the shape of the electron, it helps to constrain which of those particles might or might not exist and that therefore we have to go and look for with experiments like atomic smashers at, at CERN with the Large Hadron Collider. So scientists wanted to measure the shape of the electron. They have succeeded in doing it. There is a paper in the journal Nature this week describing this. Um, it, according to Johnny Hudson, I phoned him up and had a chat to him. It took him 10 years to do the experiment, so it's pretty difficult. But what they do mm -hmm. is to take a chemical could terbium fluoride and this has got some electrons whizzing around the outside of it as do any atoms and they use a very powerful laser beam to put energy into the atoms in such a way that they make the spins on the electrons all line up and then they feed those atoms into a very strong electrical field now the theory is this if you have an electron that is not perfectly round then when it goes into a strong electric field then if you've got something which isn't perfectly smooth, then part of it will be trying to be pulled by the electric field in one direction, and this will not be balanced out by the opposite side of the particle. So there will be a force on the electron, and if you apply a force to the electron, then you'll apply a force to the atom, and the atom will wobble a bit, and you'll be able to see that. And on the other hand, if the electron is perfectly smooth, if it goes into the electric field, if, it, if one bit of it feels a force in one direction, this will be balanced out by the opposite side of the particle feeling a force in the opposite direction, so there would be no wobble, and therefore the atoms would stay still. And that's exactly what they saw. The atoms didn't wobble, and therefore electrons are 
to all intents and purposes, perfect little spheres. And in fact, the accuracy and precision of the experiment means that if you scaled an electron, this tiny particle, up to the size of our solar system, then mm -hmm. the accuracy with which it would be a perfect sphere would be to within uh, an accuracy of the width of a human hair. That's how powerful this experiment was. And so this makes a very big difference to our understanding of what particles must or must not exist in nature mm -hmm. and therefore helps to direct physicists towards the kinds of experiments they need to do now to work out what matter is made of. All right, guys, we're taking your calls, all your questions on 021-446-0567, and I see some emails and SMSs. We'll try to squeeze everything in. We'll welcome your calls, though. It's better if you call, then we can answer you right here and now. The Naked Scientist on Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk with Reedy Clubby. And the lines are going mad. Let's go to you, Bernie in Paro. Hi. Hello, Reedy. Mm. Uh, could I ask the Naked Scientist... Um, would it ever be possible to uh, diffuse or disperse a tornado? Okay. Sure. Hello, Bernie. Um, actually, someone was looking at this about a year or so ago. They were looking at how you may actually be able to guide the direction of tropical storms and things like hurricanes. Um, the idea would be that you would in some way change the direction that the air was moving in and you do that by having to put enormous amounts of energy into the air, and you could therefore reverse the movement that the air had already and therefore stop the storm building. Because when you have a hurricane or a similar tropical storm, what's usually happening is these form near the equator, and they form quite close to the equator because that's usually where there's a big area of very warm water, so you need sustained high sea temperature. The, sea, the sustained high sea temperature causes lots of evaporation of, therefore, warm water and the warm saturated hot air is less dense than the surrounding cold air so it rises and as it rises the water also condenses out back into water droplets again and that releases even more energy which accelerates the process you then pull in cold air from around abouts which flow in towards the area where the warm water was and the warm saturated air was rising and because that cold air is coming in from across a big patch of the planet's surface and the planet is spinning, the air that's coming in to replace the risen air is also spinning, and when you add all of the angular momentum of that air together, then it adds up to make a turning. And then as you get closer and closer towards the middle, rather like an ice skater with arms and legs outstretched, pulling the arms and legs into the centre to do a very fast pirouette, the air speeds up as it gets towards the centre and turns even faster. Mm. So that's basically what happens when you have these storms. And uh, what scientists have been asking is, would it be possible to therefore reverse that spin or to mean that the air coming in is going to be uh, spinning in a different way or that you change the, the local pressure systems so that the storm is guided away from land? Um, when they do the calculations, theoretically you could do this, but the energy cost would be so high uh, that that's one uh, problem. The other problem is that there's not a very high success rate and what that means is that they, you could have an accident and accidentally send the storm in the wrong direction. And that means that you could then send it over an island or send it over a patch of country which it wasn't previously going to visit. And that could mm. cause major loss of life. And then how do you deal with the legal side of that? Of so unfortunately, at the moment, we have to be in awe and in a big respecter of the natural powers of, of nature. Thank you very much, Bernie. That's a very fascinating question. Let's go to, is it Lorna in Centurion? Uh, yes, Reedy. Uh, good morning. Mm. Um, I want to know why, when a stone hits on the window from a weed eater, on the outside of the window, a, a chip comes off on the inside of the window, but the outside is intact. 
the outside is intact and the inside is damaged when yeah, it's done. It's okay. just a little tip that comes off. Chris? Hi, Lorna. Uh, the reason for this is that glass is quite a stiff material and it's very good in compression. So if you, if you squeeze glass, then uh, it, it tends to be okay. But if you stretch glass um, and, and try and make it move uh, and, and get longer, it's much more brittle. So when the stone comes off and hits the surface of the glass on the outside, it pushes on the outside surface of the glass, compressing it, but that deforms the inside surface of the glass into a curved structure, and that curve has a has a greater distance than if the glass were flat. And you can demonstrate this yourself if you if you take a piece of paper and try and push the middle out in the paper, it will eventually rip because the paper isn't long enough to cover the curved path you're trying to make it follow. And as a result, um, one of the bits of the glass surface cannot stretch enough, and it pings off. And depending upon what sort of glass you have. It may well be laminated glass, which means the glass has got layers, alternating layers of glass and then another substance, usually some kind of protected plastic substance, and this is how you get strength. But the little chip that comes off on the inside may be the outermost surface of the safety glass um, or the outermost lamina, which uh, has pinged off. Thank you very much, Lorna. And I've got an SMS here, Shane. This person has been sending it for the last three weeks. Bill in Rodebert, I hope you are listening. Bill wants to know, Chris, why is a helicopter louder when it approaches you and quieter when it has passed and an airplane is quieter when it approaches and louder when it has passed? Both engines face backward. That's an SMS. Uh, good question. I don't know uh, the precise answer. I thought it was going to be a question about the Doppler effect, um, which is which where, is? if you okay. think, which is the Doppler effect is why an ambulance, a police car, or indeed an aeroplane sounds different when it approaches you than when it goes away. Um, I think that's at least part of the answer. The reason that the sound is different is that if you imagine a police car, because that's an easy one to deal with, the, the siren is sending sounds to you at a certain frequency or set of frequencies. And those sound waves are coming to you at the speed of sound. As the vehicle approaches you, it's continuing to emit sound waves at the same rate, but those sound waves, because the vehicle is moving, are going to get bunched up together a bit as the vehicle comes towards you because the vehicle is moving a bit faster than if, if than, than, well, the vehicle is moving and therefore the sound waves when they leave the vehicle are also moving and therefore they're going to bunch up together on their approach to you. And as the vehicle goes away from you, the sound waves are going to continue to be made at the same rate, but the vehicle is going to be moving away as it makes each one and therefore the sound waves are going to be coming uh, towards you slightly more stretched out. And this means that the pitch that you hear is going to be uh, higher when the vehicle's coming towards you and lower when the vehicle's going away. And in fact, we use the same trick to work out where things are in the heavens. When we look at stars, uh, we can work out whether stars are coming towards us in distant galaxies or going away because they are red-shifted or blue-shifted. In other words, the light that's coming to us from them is being more stretched out because they're moving away and that makes them look redder than they should. Or if they're coming towards us, they look blue-shifted because the light coming towards us is being bunched up a little bit. I think that that's probably part of the reason why Bill has noticed this interesting mm. phenomenon with the sounds of the aircraft. Wayne in Ravonia. Yes, hi, Reedy. Hi, mm. Chris. Great show. Thank you. Um, something has intrigued me for a while. I do a lot of driving, and a lot of commercial and industrial buildings I see have uh, rotating mirrored pyramids on the corners of them. And I'd like to know from somebody, and I know Chris knows everything, what are these things? Are they powered? Are they solar-powered? And what is their purpose? 
Hi, Wayne. I haven't seen these, um, but they may well be um, something, because we, we've got something sort of similar on some buildings here. Um, they may well be over the top of ducting, and they may be cowling for air vents. Um, architecture has come on a very long way these days, and what people were originally spending most of their budget doing with the new building was keeping it cool. Um, Aircon is very, very costly. And what engineers and, ar and architects have worked out how to do very well these days is how to control airflow f through buildings uh, so that they can use rising warm air in one part of the building to draw in cooler air across other parts of the building and therefore keep the building much better naturally ventilated and cut down the cost of the aircon. And this, can be, this process can also be reversed in winter in order to keep heat in or deploy heat better around the building. Uh, so I would argue that those things are probably uh, an a sort of aesthetic way of making that aspect of the architecture look a bit nicer. But that's my guess. Thank you very much, uh, f uh, Wayne, for the question. Uh, last one for you, Chris. Tell me about the bottleneck cleared in artery research, clogged arteries. Yes. Uh, well, one of the things that's come on a very long way in medicine in the last about 20 years, is what to do when arteries get blocked up. Because in the old days, we had to send people for open heart surgery. You had to literally open up their chest and then do an artery bypass where you put a piece of, a piece of vein or a new artery around a blockage in a coronary artery in order to maintain good blood, blood supply to the heart muscle. And that makes symptoms like angina better and prevents people having heart attacks. But all that's largely gone by the by and those operations are much more rarely performed these days because cardiologists now deal with blocked arteries by threading a tiny probe up inside the artery and then blowing up a balloon inside the artery to open up the artery again and then propping it open with a tiny metal cage called a stent and that's proved very very effective that kind of treatment but what it doesn't do is give us any information about which bits of the artery are at greatest risk of having a problem in future mm. because the way in which we find the narrowed bits is by squirting dye down inside the artery and then looking at where the dye is with x-rays which isn't ideal either because you're giving the patient a big dose of x-rays uh, this week though scientists in america at harvard and this is farouk jaffa and his colleagues have published a paper in the journal science translational medicine where they have found a new chemical that, ironically, we've actually been using in medicine for over 50 years, which will highlight very, very well where the most diseased and therefore most vulnerable patches of an artery are, and therefore where doctors need to focus their attention. This is a substance called indocyanin green, and it's, it's clever because this substance binds to fatty material, so it very, very well exemplifies where an artery has a buildup of fatty material that might clog it. But also, the chemical has what's called a near-infrared signature. So what you can do to detect it is that you, you put some near-infrared light inside the blood vessel in a little probe and you look at where the infrared is being absorbed or re-emitted from and that tells you where this chemical is and that therefore tells you where the disease is in the wall of the artery with very high precision. And it means that you don't have to use x-rays, which is even better because you then don't have to give the patient so many doses of ionizing radiation or the contrast media that you normally use to see where the x-rays are, are, are being absorbed, which can also be bad for people's kidneys. And because this dye is already in medical use and has been for 50, 50. years and is safe, 
there's no reason why this couldn't be immediately used in the clinic. Okay, we're getting somewhere. Well, catch the naked scientist in the flesh in Grahamstown at the National Arts Festival from the 30th of June. It's a celebration of the best in South African arts, everything from classical to kwaito, 2,500 performances crammed into 11 days of amazing. www.nationalartsfestival.co.za And we all cannot wait. Chris, have a lovely weekend. And you. Thank you, everyone. Great questions. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.